Well, for the next three weeks, we're going to be doing things slightly different than normal. Uh, our normal rhythm, as you know, is for us to walk through books of the Bible, um, even verse by verse through text of the Bible. But for the next three weeks, we're going to pause and do a, a topical series on the incarnation. Jesus becoming flesh, coming to the earth, being born of a virgin, and taking on full humanity. It's a topic we celebrate and think about on Christmas, and it's glorious that we do. It's a truth worth celebrating and just taking time to marvel at. So that's my hope for the next three weeks, that we'll look at the incarnation and be led to worship and awe at the person of Jesus, who became human, became flesh. In the 11th century, a man by the name of Anselm of Canterbury famously asked the question, Cur Deus Homo, which means, why the God-man? Or why did God become man? That's the question I want us to take up today. As we look forward to Christmas and the celebration of the birth of Christ, I want us to understand why Jesus becoming human is necessary, awe-inspiring, and beautiful. While it took Anselm a full book to answer his own question, his one-sentence answer was this. So why did God become man? He said this, God the Son became man to fulfill God's plan to save sinners by making satisfaction for their sin. I'll read that again. God the Son became man to fulfill God's plan to save sinners by making satisfaction for their sin. No less can be said than that, but there's certainly more. So, that's the question I want us to consider. It's very important for us to understand Christ's deity, him being fully God, and we'll do that another day. But is it really that big of a deal that Christ became human? It is. Uh, earlier, Marissa read for us John chapter 1, and we heard the amazing truth that the Word, who is Jesus Christ, became flesh. But there were actually those early in Christianity who denied this truth. They were known as docetists. The Greek word dakeo means seems. And these particular people, the docetists, believed that Jesus was fully God, but only seemed to be human. From the start this morning, I want us to see the Apostle John's response to this. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 says this. 1 John 4, verses 1 through 3 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. 
Confessing that Jesus has come in the flesh is vital, according to John. He knew that to deny Jesus' humanity was to deny something at the very heart of Christianity. But why is this so important? Well, the New Testament gives several reasons why Jesus had to be fully man in order to be the Messiah and to earn our salvation. Full transparency here. I'm not going to do adequate justice to any of these. Um, Each of these could be a full sermon in and of themselves. But I at least want to give us a quick overview. So uh, I'm going to give us seven reasons for why Jesus became man and why it matters. Seven reasons for why Jesus became man and why it matters. So here we go. Jesus had to be fully man, first and foremost, for representative obedience. Number one, for representative obedience. We've mentioned this several times this year, but I'll briefly say it again. Adam in the garden, at the beginning of creation, was declared by God to be what's called our federal head. He represented humanity in the garden. He represented you, and he represented me. Now, No, we didn't pick him to be our federal head, but God did, and he chooses perfectly. Adam represented us perfectly. What Adam did, you and I would have done, and we know the story, right? Adam failed. He rebelled against a good, loving, and just God. He disobeyed God and sinned against the Lord of the universe. That's how sin entered the world. A representative man who disobeyed. God demands righteousness and full obedience. And for those who repent or turn from sin and believe in Christ, the truth is that we not only have one representative man, but we have another representative man who achieved all of this on our behalf. That man is Jesus. I want us to look at what Paul says. If you got your Bibles, flip over to Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Romans 5, 18 and 19. And it says this. It says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so that's, that's talking about Adam there, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. What he's saying is that everywhere Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. That's why Paul calls Jesus the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15.45. And why Paul calls Adam the first man and Christ the second man, two verses later in verse 47. Jesus had to be a man to represent us and to obey in our place. That's point one. Closely related... Jesus had to be fully man, point two, to be a substitute sacrifice. 
to be a substitute sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. Hebrews 2, verses 11 through 17 says this, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God has given me. And then it says this in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It's a mouthful. While there's a lot going on in that text, one of the main ideas that is that Jesus had to become man and not an angel. Why? Because his mission was to save men, not angels. And notice in verse 17, these two words, had to. He had to. In order to make propitiation for the sins of the people, he had to be made like us in every way. This word, propitiation, it means bearing God's wrath fully, and therefore changing that wrath into favor. We saw that over and over and over again in the book of Esther, didn't we? Propitiation, bearing God's wrath fully, and therefore changing that wrath into favor. This is another one of those words that could have a full sermon. But in order for Jesus to be our substitute and to bear wrath on our behalf, he had to be made like us in every respect. We see this idea so clearly in a text that we hear often repeated during the Christmas time. Uh, Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6 says, surely he, meaning Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the, the truth that's picked up by Paul in Romans chapter 3 that we read earlier as our confession of sin. And it says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom... God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. 
It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Unless Jesus was fully man, he couldn't have died to pay the penalty for man's sin. He couldn't have been a substitute sacrifice for us. That's the point. Third, Jesus had to be fully man to be the one mediator between God and man. To be the one mediator between God and man. Because it is true that all have sinned, we needed someone who could come between us and God to bring us back to God. Wayne Grudem notes this. He says, we needed a mediator who could represent us to God and who could represent God to us. Look at what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 through 6. 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. It says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For Jesus to adequately fulfill the role of mediator, he had to be fully God. But he also had to be fully man. He had to represent both sides. Fourth, Jesus had to be fully man to fulfill God's original purpose for man to rule over creation. To fulfill God's original purpose for man to rule over creation. Again, we're going to go all the way back to Adam here. God's purpose was for Adam to subdue the earth and to rule over it as God's vice regent or delegate. Man, created in the image of God, was meant to represent God here on earth, and specifically God's authority over all things. Again, Adam failed miserably at this, didn't he? Instead of trusting in God's good authority, and instead of stomping on the head of Satan in the garden, enacting that authority, subduing, ruling, Adam chose to sin and punt on his responsibility. So follow me here for a second. Psalm 8, verses 4 through 8. Go ahead and flip over there with me. Psalm 8, verses 4 through 8. Psalm 8, verses 4 through 8. It says this. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Just before these verses, the psalmist has shown the absolute glory and majesty of God. And here in these verses, he turns and tells us that 
God bestowed on us glory and honor by giving us dominion over the works of his hands. Now, we've already noted twice that Adam failed in this. But look at what the author of Hebrews does with Psalm 8 that we just read. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. The author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8, and he says this. He says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. And then he says, It has been testified somewhere. I love that. Um, he just says, Somewhere in the Old Testament, God said this. And then he quotes Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Then he explains. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Do you see that? Hebrews 2 takes Psalm 8 and says that Jesus leads us back to God's original design for man. He restores humanity's role as God's vice regent. There's nothing outside of his control. Everything is in subjection under his feet, even the head of Satan. Where Adam failed, Christ succeeded yet again. Jesus has, in fact, according to Matthew 28, 18, he's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. God has put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Ephesians 1, 22. Adam couldn't put Satan under his feet, but Jesus did. You see the pattern here. Adam the man fails. Jesus the man succeeds on our behalf, renewing God's plan for humanity. So, in review, Jesus had to be fully man, number one, for representative obedience. Two, to be a substitute sacrifice. Three, to be the one mediator between God and men. Four, to fulfill God's original purpose for man to rule over creation. Fifth, Jesus had to be fully man to be our example and pattern in life. To be our example and pattern in life. Understand this. Protestant liberalism has used this argument to absolutely gut the atonement of all meaning. They, they teach that Jesus' life and death were simply as an example uh, to us of how we should live and how we should sacrifice for others, and nothing more. I, I want you to hear this loud and clear. Jesus' perfect life and his atoning sacrifice for sin is significantly more than just an example. But it's not less. Jesus came to this earth, and he lived fully as human. 
to be our example and our pattern in life. Look at what the Apostle John says in 1 John 2, verses 4 through 6. 1 John 2, 4 through 6. John says, Whoever says, I know him, meaning Jesus, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Do you see that? As a human, Jesus is an example to us as Christians of how to walk, meaning how to live the Christian life in obedience to God's commands. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 reminds us, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Hebrews 12, verse 2, it encourages us as Christians to look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. I could go on, but the point is this. If you want to know what pure and perfect Christianity looks like, you can look to Jesus, who was a human, and as a human, lived the perfect Christian life. Point six, Jesus had to be fully man to be the pattern for our redeemed bodies. To be the pattern for our redeemed bodies. 1 Corinthians 15 is an amazing chapter that speaks so clearly on the gospel and on resurrection. Paul teaches us that when Jesus rose from the grave, he rose in a new body an imperishable body, raised in glory and raised in power, raised as a spiritual body. And then look at what he says, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. He says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Paul is using an agricultural analogy here. First fruit is a sample from the harvest, showing what the rest of the harvest will be like. Now, I'm a coffee guy. In the coffee world, they do things like this. They go to a particular farm at harvest, they take samples. They roast a very small amount of it, and then they do what's called cupping, where they look at the texture of the bean. They smell the ground bean. Then they taste the coffee out of cupping spoons. They're able to rate the coffee and let everyone else know what the rest of the harvest is going to be like. Now, imagine doing all of that and then putting out a statement about the quality of apples in the vineyard next to the coffee plantation. That wouldn't make sense, right? You're comparing apples to coffee. Way better than apples and oranges, in my opinion. But that's the point here. 
For Jesus to be a firstfruits in the resurrection, he had to be fully human with a human body. Look at how Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 45 through 49. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49. He says, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, who's that? Jesus. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, which is who? Jesus, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Seventh and finally, Jesus had to be fully man to sympathize as a high priest. To sympathize as a high priest. I want to read to you two passages, both from the book of Hebrews. We'll start with Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. It says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Do you see that? Because Jesus was fully human, he can help you when you're being tempted. He's experienced the temptation to its fullest extent. Because he was fully human, he can sympathize with you in that. You can talk to him amidst temptation, and he actually understands you. He can help you because he's been there before. Even more, look at Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Christian, in the moment of temptation, you can go to Jesus because he in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. He's navigated the, the, the maze of life perfectly and we can go to him for help. He knows your struggles and your temptations by experience because he was fully human. So, what's the point in all of this? This Christmas season, I don't want us to just see the nativity scene and think, man, that's sweet. Look at the baby Jesus. I want us to understand just how marvelous it is that Jesus became flesh. He is fully God, but he became fully man. And this has so much meaning and importance for us as Christians. This Christmas season, when you see the nativity scene, 
I want you to stop and worship God. Thank him for all that this miraculous birth means. Stand in awe at this God-man. The nativity scene is sweet, but it should lead our hearts to wonder and to awe and to worship. Second, the truth of the incarnation should shape how we live in our own neighborhoods and in our city. Jesus put on flesh. He became one of us, yet without sin. That's how he served us and ministered to us. So I'll ask the question, what would it look like for you to be incarnational in the way that you relate to your neighbors and co-workers and friends? Jesus didn't merely love us from a distance. He came to us and entered our world. So I want to encourage us this morning. Let the incarnation lead you to worship and let it lead you to mission. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, says this, and this is where we'll close. Matthew 18, or sorry, 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In light of that, let the incarnation lead you to worship and let it lead you to mission. Let's pray.